Well, I want to invite you to uh, just focus in for the next few minutes with me on the last message in this series uh, that I've called Algorithms. I've been preaching through the month of November on this idea of renewing our mind. And I was going to skip a little introduction about algorithms today because I've given one the last three weeks, but I was talking on the phone with my mom last Sunday night, and she asked, you know, how was church, what you've been preaching about? And I said, well, I'm in a series right now called Algorithms. Awkward pause. And then she goes, and do the people know what that is? So I was like, well, so then I explained it to her. So just in case you weren't here, uh, let me give you a a little definition of what an algorithm is. This is um, a little bit of a mouthful, but here's an idea. An algorithm refers to a sequence of steps or rules designed to produce a specific outcome from a set of inputs. So if you want certain results... On the output side, you put certain formulas on the input side, and and we all have algorithms all around us in life. The idea of this series has simply been this, that God has given you the ability to change your mind, to change your thinking, and the way you change your thinking is the same way that I just described in algorithms. You change the inputs. You control your thoughts. You bring them under the captivity of the Holy Spirit, and you get a different outcome. Your mind can be renewed in Christ Jesus. The Bible says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Now, let me just say, this is an easy verse to quote. It's a hard one to live. If you don't know this verse and you want to say, I I wish I memorized scripture, here's a good one to start with. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, it says this, be joyful always, period. (laughs) How many of you know that's a lot easier to say than it is to do? But I think you memorized it, so let's try it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, be joyful always. Now, joy is not a feeling. If it was a feeling, that'd be impossible, because how many of you know our feelings, they come and go? They change all the time. Joy is not a feeling. Joy is knowing that God is in control of my life. That's joy. In fact, I heard a great definition of joy by author Kay Warren. And I want to talk to you today about how to get an algorithm of joy. So listen to this definition she gave. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. Joy is the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. Joy is the determined choice to praise God in every situation. I think that's a beautiful description of what real joy, it's not a feeling. Did you notice in that description there was nothing about emotions, nothing about the way I feel, nothing about my circumstances? That's not what joy comes from. Happiness is is fleeting. It comes and goes. It's circumstance-based. But joy is abiding. Joy is sustaining. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is strength. And so this joy that we're talking about, it's a settled assurance. God's in control. He is in control of all the details of my life. 
I don't have to, it doesn't have to make sense to me, and sometimes it doesn't, but Jesus is in control, and that gives me joy. It's that quiet confidence that ultimately, maybe not today, it's not working out, but ultimately, I know that God is working things out for my good. Understanding that God knows his desired outcome, and he can work with all the inputs, gives me an algorithm of joy. It's that determined choice. You made it this morning. I made it this morning. It's a determined choice that says, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to praise God. You, you got dressed. You, you came in, in bad weather, and you said, I'm going to make a choice today. I'm going to praise God. You chose joy. You could have chose something else. You could have gone a lot of different places, but that's joy. I read a verse this week, and I never even really noticed this passage of Scripture before, but I love it. It's in Job chapter 39, and I'm going to promise you, nobody here expected to hear this verse when you came to church this morning. Job 39 verse 13 says this, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully. How many of you didn't, honestly, you didn't even know ostrich was in the Bible? I mean, you knew it was on Noah's Ark, but you didn't know it was in the Bible. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and the feathers of the stork. I just got that picture in my mind. I just thought, can you just see it like a big old ostrich just flapping joyfully, just you know, strutting around, just, just doing his thing? Some of you, you just need some, you just need to flap joyfully. And, and here's the thing the stork does not compare to the beauty or the ostrich doesn't compare to the beauty of the stork. Do you know why the ostrich still flaps joyfully? Because the ostrich could care less about the stork. See, some of you, you lost your joy because you're comparing your circumstances and your happiness and your contentment to everybody else. Can I just encourage you? Just go ahead and flap joyfully right where you are with the goodness of God in your life. He's been faithful. I can see some of you want to practice it. You're right now like, I just, that just feels good. I, I need to do that. God wants to give you joy, but your life, it's, it's always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. I'm going to say that again. Your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. But if your thoughts are wrong, the good news is you can change the algorithm in your mind. There were, there were two shoe salesmen that, that packed up uh, cargo boxes and took a flight to a, to a country on the continent of Africa. They were going to expand their businesses. The first one, he got there, and when he stepped onto the tarmac in this country, immediately he was discouraged. He looked around, and he said, the people here don't even wear shoes. This was a waste of time. This was a waste of money. And he got back on the plane. Shortly after that, the other salesman, he flew in and he landed on the tarmac and he stepped out and he looked around and he said, order more shoes. It's a wide open market. <laughs> See, your thoughts have an influence on your perspective and on your attitude and on your joy. Your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. Here's a thought. James chapter 1, verse 2. James said this, and this is really going to be the foundation for where we're headed today in this algorithm of joy. He said, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Another translation of that says, count it all joy, 
Just, I don't know how you're tallying up the circumstances of your life. I don't know how you count the wins and the lost columns, success or failure, but can I just challenge you today? Count it all joy. Even when you face various trials, consider it all pure joy. I want to ask you today to ponder this question. How are you considering it? Now, last week, the question was, what's the matter? And the question last week was, what's the matter? Because we talked about how your mind controls the process for how your brain responds. Your mind controls the process for how your brain responds. Your mind decides how you think, how you feel, and what you choose. And the matter in your brain, the neural pathways that are developed by your thinking are influenced by the choices in your mind, how you think, how you feel, and how you choose. So there's lots of people that would maybe console their emotions by saying, what I think doesn't matter, but scientifically, what you think is matter, because your thoughts create the neural pathways in your brain. The Bible says, as a man thinks, so is he. So if you'll change your mind, you can change your matter. But here's what I know. You cannot live a positive life with negative thoughts. You just can't. You cannot live a positive life with a negative mind. So let me ask you this question again today. How do you consider it? How are you considering it? There's no greater example I can think of than the Apostle Paul. For a person that knew the algorithm of joy and understood how to consider circumstances, open with me to the letter to the Philippians in the New Testament and the first chapter, Philippians chapter one. We're going to camp out here as we discover how to consider it pure joy. As you're turning to Philippians one, let me tell you, this book is Paul's 10-year challenge. How, how many of you have seen that happening on social media this week? Everybody's doing a 10-year challenge right now, right? Like they, they post a picture of themselves currently, and then they, they post a picture of themselves 10 years ago. And you can kind of see how the decade treated them, you know, how they're doing. Well, in AD 51, Paul established the church at Philippi. And now this is 10 years later, he's writing them a letter. He's, he's checking in here, going to see how everything's been in the last 10 years. I want to show you a picture. I had an incredible opportunity to see something this year. A couple months ago, my wife and I we took a trip to Rome, and while I was in Rome, I got to go into the Mamertine prison. This was a moment that was, it was very sharpening for me in my perspective. When I, when I read letters like Philippians, and I know that Paul wrote this letter from prison, walking down a spiral staircase into the Mamertine, prison, Mamertine jail, gave me a different perspective because that is the prison that Paul was in when he wrote his letter to 2 Timothy. In fact, there's historians that have described the Mamertine prison, and I'll show you a picture of it. I think we have a picture here. I took that picture in September. It's underneath a building. It, it is what it looks like a damp, dark hole in the ground. It's been called the house of darkness 
And there are a few prisons that were as dark or dank or dirty as the lower chamber that Paul occupied in this Mamertine prison. It was known in earlier times as the Tullianum Dungeon. And according to Roman historian Sallust, its, quote, neglect, darkness, and stench gave it a hideous and terrifying appearance. Standing in that place, I put my hand on those walls, and I thought, the Apostle Paul leaned against this wall. I closed my eyes, and I just felt the the dampness in the air. I could hear the noise on the street outside, and I knew right outside of that prison, I I could see the Roman Forum, and just across on the other side of the Forum was the Colosseum, where Nero was feeding Christians to lions. And I wondered, as sure as I could hear the buses going by in modern-day Rome, I wondered if, if Paul from that place could hear the lions roar as they pounced on Christians in the Colosseum. And when I thought about that, and I stood there, and I just breathed in that air, It gave me a totally different perspective on this man and how he could, from a place like that, encourage people to hold on to joy and encourage people in their faith. It was during one of those imprisonments in Rome that that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. And when he wrote this letter, he wasn't in the Mamertine prison. He was actually on house arrest, but he was shackled to a Roman guard. He had no privacy. He had no no space to himself. He was literally handcuffed to a prison guard. And it was from that place in Rome that he considered it pure joy. There's a lot of things we could talk about, but there's just three things in this first chapter of Philippians that Paul considered that I want you to consider. If you're a note taker, here they are. Consider prayers. Consider problems and consider people. I want to begin in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 1. Look at Paul's words as he writes from a prison to this church 10 years later. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I don't know about you, but that statement all by itself put a little conviction in me. I mean, I don't know what your prayer life sounds like. I mean, I could say I thank God most of the time, but Paul said every time. Every time I pray, I thank my God. I mean, how amazing must these people have been that after 10 years, every time Paul thought about them, he thanked God. Well, I would propose to you today that they're probably not that perfect. They're probably not that great. And I think Paul's attitude has a lot less to do with the consistency of their character and a whole lot more to do with his algorithm of joy. Wouldn't you say so? Paul said, every time I think of you, every time I remember you, I thank my God. Did you know that the way that you think actually has an impact on the effectiveness of your prayer? I didn't say the way that you pray. I said the way that you think has an impact on the effectiveness of your prayer. In fact, in that same chapter of James where he said, consider it all pure joy, just a few verses later in verse 6, To eight, he said this. He said, but when you ask, referring to prayer, when you ask in prayer, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea being blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Look at verse eight. Such a person is double-minded and unstable 
in all they do. A person who, who doesn't believe what they're praying, a person who's double-minded, they think one thing and they say something else, he said that person is unstable. Do you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' encounter with an invalid in John 5. He asked the man a question. He said, do you want to get well? Do you know what he was saying? I want single-mindedness. Don't, don't have double-mindedness. I just want to know, where, where's your thoughts? The psalmist said it like this. He said, one thing do I desire, and this one thing do I seek, that I could dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze upon your beauty. There was a single-mindedness in the heart of the psalmist. God wants us to to have a single-mindedness in prayer. Paul said this, every time I remember you, I thank my God. The fact is, Paul could have remembered a lot of things. It wasn't that they were perfect people. It wasn't that he had nothing but good memories. In fact, the one thing that he could have remembered is the present problems. Because just like our church is not perfect, their church wasn't perfect. And when you read the letter to the Philippians, and you get to chapter 4, verse 2, Paul makes an appeal to two of the ladies in the church because they were leaders in the church. And he he makes an appeal to to, uh, Sintichi, and, and he says, would you please, would you... Get along with one another. He says to Euodia, please agree with one another because their disagreement was causing disunity in the church. He could have focused on the present problems. He could have also focused on the pain of his past because Acts chapter 16 tells us what happened when Paul started this church 10 years earlier. The Bible says that Paul and his ministry partner Silas were arrested And before they were thrown into jail there in Philippi and put in shackles, the Bible says that they were beaten with rods, the same way that Jesus was beaten at the whipping post before he went to the cross. So you can imagine, for the last 10 years, every time the apostle Paul takes his shirt off, he sees the scars of Philippi. He could have said, every time I remember you, man, I think about the beating I took. But that's not what he said. And it's not because it didn't happen. It's not because those realities weren't there. There's an algorithm. There's a perspective. There's something to consider in your prayer life that Paul says, every time I remember you, I thank my God. You know, I've noticed something about myself. Whenever I pray out loud, I don't know if if you're this way, but I kind of have some default settings. You know, some words that I always say. You ever done that? Maybe like when you're praying for a meal, you just kind of wrote memory. You kind of say the same thing. My, my two youngest girls, they don't let me get away with it. I'm Macy and Mally, they will call me on it. Like I was praying for one of them the other night. They were laying in their bed and we were going through our routine and, and I started to pray over and she just looked at me, just stone faced. She said, you said that last night. <laughs> like, hey, don't just ship it in. I'm like, I want authenticity. Like, if you're going to pray for me, dig a little deeper. I was like, wow, okay, let's, let's, let's go in here. You know, I mean, she called me on it. But you probably are that way, too. Some of the things you say, the kind of rote memory. I, I, I've, I've noticed something about my prayer life. I usually start when I pray out loud. I say, Father, I thank you. Father, I thank you. I, I do it almost like as, as, as automatic as closing my eyes. Those words just come out of my mouth. This, this week, actually, I had the opportunity to be down at the hospital with one of our members. She was getting ready to go in for surgery, and 
the, uh, the technician or the nurse, they were already in the room. They were about to take her back for the pre-op, and I didn't know how long that would take or if I'd get to pray for her later. So I said, could we just pray real quick? And he, he said, sure. And so I said, well, let's pray. We held hands, and I said, Father, I thank you. And then I just began to pray. But in the back of my mind, this other narrative was happening. In the back of my mind, I was kind of thinking, like, is it weird to him that I just started out by saying, Father, I thank you. I mean, she's about to go into surgery. And I don't know why, but it just struck me as odd. And I wondered if he thought that was really weird. But you know what? I, started, I said, Father, I thank you. And immediately I began to say, for your faithfulness in this moment. Thank you, God, that you were not caught off guard by today. Thank you that, Lord, when the diagnosis came, it was no surprise to you. Thank you, God, that you don't have to go back to the cross to shed your son's blood again to provide the healing that is already ours in Christ Jesus. And I just began to thank God. And then after the pre-op, she came back to the room, and we talked a little bit more. And then it was time for the surgery, and and I said, well, let's just pray together one more time. And I closed my eyes, and I said, Father, I thank you. And then because of the previous mental conversation, I remember, and then I had to kind of laugh at myself. I thought, wow, I did it again. And I realized that I just do that. But you know what else I've noticed? I've never started a prayer, Father, I thank you, and not had something to give thanks for. I've never had to start again. I've never had to go, oh, that doesn't work. No, it always works. It always works to begin with giving God praise. In fact, I just want you to try it with me right now. Not, not, don't just repeat after me because that's going to feel contrived and my girls won't let you get away with that. You actually have to talk to God for it to work. But I, I just want you to close your eyes and just say, Father, I thank you, and then just whatever comes to your mind after that. Ready? Let's pray right now. Father, I thank you. Now, now I, don't, I don't know what, what came to your mind. I don't know what you thought about. If it's not like really embarrassing or personal, just tell somebody. What you, just tell somebody what you thank God for real quick. Just tell them what popped into your head. What did you thank God for? You know, it never ceases to amaze me what gratitude comes to the surface of my heart when I choose to take a posture of thanksgiving. Can I tell you the algorithm of joy? It begins with thanks. Lots of different things you can think about, lots of things you can remember. It could be present pain, past pain, it could be problems. But Paul said, every time I remember you, I thank my God. The second thing is this, consider not just your prayers, but consider problems, because you know we all have those. Consider the algorithm of joy when it comes to your problems. Look down at verse 12 with me. It says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Can I tell you what happened to Paul? Paul was in prison. Did you know Paul wanted to go to Rome? So desperately, 
I mean, for years, he had dreamed of going and preaching in that great city. He knew it was the epicenter of society. And if he could just get there and preach the gospel, the gospel would go to the nations. And that was always his heartbeat. He wanted so bad to go to Rome. In fact, he had even written an epistle to the Christians in Rome. We call it the Book of Romans. He wrote that never having been there. He was so excited to go and to preach the gospel there. But can I tell you one thing that he never envisioned in that dream? He never thought he'd go there in shackles as a prisoner. That was not the plan. And I know that was not the plan because when he wrote his epistle to the Romans in Romans 15, 29, here's what he said. With all confidence, he said, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Now, the truth is, he did come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. But I would dare say, when Paul or when you or I envision the full measure of the blessing of Christ, it doesn't look like this. He didn't expect to go as a prisoner. But now he's there. And Paul is shackled to a Roman guard. He could have lost his joy. That's a situation that that warrants a pity party. Come on. I mean, everybody deserves one every once in a while, right? I mean, he could have just lost his joy in those circumstances, but he didn't. And the reason that he didn't is because Paul had a different perspective on dealing with problems. See, what Paul did is he reframed the problem. And that's what some of us need to do. We need to learn how to reframe the problem. See, most of us, we'd have looked at that situation, we would have said, man, that's just really unfortunate. He didn't deserve that. Or we'd say, man, that's just that's bad. That's, man, that's, that's rough. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, that's, that's just a tough situation. The reality is you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you frame it. That's up to you. It's like the little boy I read about who, who went into his backyard. He had a baseball bat and a ball and stayed in his backyard, and nobody else is around. But he says out loud, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Throws the ball in the air and swings and misses. Strike one. Picks the ball back up. I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Picks it up, swings for the fences. Strike two. He looks around, still nobody. He picks up that ball. He says, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Throws it in the air and swings for the fences. And he missed again. Strike three. He picked up the ball real quick and looked around to see if anybody saw that. And he goes, I just struck out the greatest hitter in the world. I'm the greatest pitcher that ever lived. See, you can reframe it. And that's what Paul did. He took an opportunity to reframe his circumstances. He could have sat there in that prison cell. He could have sulked about his hardships. He could have complained about how unfair life had been, about how God had forgotten him or overlooked him. He could have gotten mad at God. He could have started putting conditions of blessing on his future obedience. I know none of you have done that. But he could have said, God, if you'll fix this or change that or work things out, then I'll do this and then I'll follow you there. He didn't do any of those things. Instead, Paul reframed the situation. He had an algorithm of joy, even when considering problems. And and all of a sudden, he realized, wait a minute. I'm not just shackled to this guard. 
This guard is shackled to me. I'm in Rome, and I have a captive audience to preach the gospel to. I mean, nobody's leaving early for lunch here. I I can preach the gospel to this guy for the next eight hours, and then there's a shift change, and somebody else is coming, and they're going to be chained to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, I didn't plan on coming by way of chains, but I was going to have to raise the money for the trip, and now the government paid to send me here. So hey, this is a good deal. I'm going to preach the gospel. And look at verse 13 and 14. Paul says, as a result of what has happened to me, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul reframed it. He said, you know, I I wish the circumstances were different. I can't really thank God for my problem, but I can certainly thank God for what it's producing. Look what's happening. The church is beginning to be emboldened in their their passion and their zeal for the gospel. And, And every eight hours, I get to preach to another Roman guard. Now everybody in the palace guard knows the gospel of Jesus Christ. A few years later, Paul would be back in Rome. He would be a prisoner again, but this time not on house arrest. This time he was actually put in that Mamertine prison that I showed you earlier, the one that I stood in a few months ago. And he had one more letter to write when he could feel the world closing in on him and the persecution getting hotter and hotter. Somehow in the midst of a dark and a desolate place, Paul still tapped into the algorithm of joy. Listen to these words that Paul says to his young protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2 and 9, he's talking about the gospel. He says, this is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But look at the next words. But God's word is not chained. Even then, Paul could see it from that Mamertine prison cell. He said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not chained. These problems are overwhelming, but God's work is still working. God's purpose is still advancing. You got to reframe your adversity with gratitude for what it's producing. You don't have to thank God for the problem, but thank God that he works through the problems, that God can use all of the ingredients, the good and the bad, that all things are working together for my good. There's an algorithm of joy that Paul said, I'm going to reframe it. The reality is, as much as we would love for God to just remove the difficulties and remove the problems, the reality is God loves you way too much to rob from you the very things that are going to catalyze your character development. There's things in your life that God is using. You would call them frustrations, but it's a frustration of grace. See, it's later in this same letter to the Philippians that Paul said these words in Philippians 3.10. He said, I want to know Christ, and I want to be like him. See, Paul understood something, and so should we. That you can't expect to be like Jesus without being criticized by some Pharisees. 
or betrayed by a Judas or tempted by the devil. So the problems are there. They're real. But we choose how to frame them. And so Paul did that. He did exactly what James said we should do. I want you to see it again. James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind. Why? Why did James say that? Look at the next verse. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. If you can't thank God for the problem, just thank God for what it's producing. Choose joy. You got to set the algorithm for joy by reframing your problems. Listen, if you can't thank God for what it's producing, then just thank him that it didn't happen sooner. Thank him that it wasn't worse. How many of you know it could have been worse? Sometimes that's just a healthy thought process. Whenever we start to feel overwhelmed with our circumstances to go, it could have been worse. The reality is there's always something to thank God for. You can thank him that it didn't happen sooner. You can thank him that it's not worse than it is. And you can thank him for what it's producing in your life when you consider your problems. Consider it pure joy. Third and finally, consider people. Paul gives us some insight in Philippians chapter 1 about how he considered it all joy when he was dealing with other people. And we got to deal with people, right? As we approach Thanksgiving, thought I'd get more of an amen on it. Some of you guys are like, yes, yeah, it's be awesome. I'd say that jokingly. I can't wait for Thanksgiving, but I know that the reality is, for some of us, it's a real struggle. And sometimes the struggles of our faith are strongest in our relationships. So I want you to see how Paul dealt with relationships for a moment here. Look at verse 4. He said, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Now, can I just say, there's a lot of grace in that statement. I mean, if, if, Paul, if Paul had said, some of my prayers for several of you are prayed with joy. That's not what he said. I mean, I could get on board with that. But he, he said a lot of alls there. All my prayers for all of you always prayed with joy. How did he do that? How did Paul always have joy when he was thinking about imperfect people? Well, there's two things right here in the next verse. The two things are the partnership of the people and the power of God. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, because, here's how I pray with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of your partnership. See, Paul just believed the best about people. And you'll, you'll, you'll get a long ways down the road of joy if you'll just make up your mind to give people the benefit of the doubt. Paul just believed the best in people. They weren't perfect. They had their problems. They had their issues just like anyone else does. But here's what he did know about them. They hadn't quit. I mean, 10 years ago, he started this church. And when he looked at the story of his life, a lot of people have quit on Paul. He even says so at the end of this book. Everybody forsook me at my first defense. A lot of people had quit. So he's looking at these imperfect people that have all their own issues, and they hadn't quite worked out all the things in the church yet. But he says, man, every time I pray for you, I'm full of joy. I always thank God when I remember you. One of the reasons is just because you're still here. 
I'm glad you're here this morning. You know, not everybody that started this journey with us still is. I'm glad you're here. And I have enough belief and confidence that, hey, if you just won't quit, if you'll just stick with it and be willing to to be refined and be willing to be irritated and agitated even by other people, but be so committed to what God wants to do in his kingdom, he's going to work in your life. And that's the second thing, because really more than, more than just his confidence in their willingness to not quit, more than just his confidence in their partnership, Paul was confident in God's power. See, here's the key. Look at verse 6. He said, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, Paul's algorithm for joy in the church was not the perfection of people. It was the power of God. He simply believed this, that God is able to complete what he started. That's a core value in this church. Our mission statement is that that we want to lead people from where they are to where God wants them to be. Can I tell you, that means leading people from where they are, even when you know they should be farther than where they are. Even when you're frustrated because they were farther than where they are, but they slipped and they fell back. Leading people from where they are to where God wants them to be means loving and patiently walking with people in situations that they shouldn't be in. But we do it. Why? Because we have a confidence in the power of God that if you just won't quit, if you'll just stick to it, if you'll just stay partnered up, we believe that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in your life. And so we're just going to journey with you. We're just going to go arm in arm. We're going to walk this thing out together. We're going to let the grace of God do its work in your life. If you want to have joy with people, can I just encourage you? Have a little faith in people, but then have a lot of faith in God. Paul was confident because they hadn't quit, but he was mostly confident because he knew as long as you don't quit, God's power can make the difference. God can can change your life. God can finish the work that he started. You know, some people, they're just too quick to to wanna be the the truth teller in the room. And they say things like this. They say, well, I just tell it like it is. And when they say, I just tell it like it is, what they really mean is I'm going to say something that's probably a little bit rude, a little bit crass, but I don't really care. And so I'm just going to tell it like it is. Can I just tell you, pessimism is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's just not. We don't need you to tell it like it is because we can all see what it is. We know what it is. How about this? How about telling it like it can be? How about telling it like it should be? Come on, the Bible says that you have the power of life and death in your tongue. So we don't need somebody to have the gift of pessimism that says, well, I just call it like I see it. Call it like it should be. Call it by faith. Call those things that are not as though they were. Even though I'm still over here, prophesy that my future is going to be greater. You want to have joy when you're considering people? Have a little faith in them and have a lot of faith in God and quit telling us what we already know is wrong with us 
and start speaking life and start speaking truth and start speaking about people's destiny. Paul chose to see the best in people. He said, look at verse seven. He said in verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. What does that mean? You have somebody in your heart that he means I'm praying for you. It's right for me to feel this way because I'm praying for you. You know what I've found? It's hard to stay really mad at somebody that you're sincerely praying for. I mean, if you'll really commit to praying for somebody, it'll change your heart. I found that people usually end up in one of two places. They're either in my heart or on my nerves. (laughs) That's about how that works. You're either in my heart or on my nerves. If I can't pray for you, there's something wrong. But if I can pray for you, if I can have you in my heart, God can change my mind about you. God can change my perspective of you. Instead of cursing what's wrong with your life, I can speak towards the blessing and the purpose and the identity and the nature of God that's in you. Did you know everybody that's walking the face of this earth was created in the image of God? We do remember that, right? We know that. And so when we choose to bless and to see God's potential in people, it it changes the algorithm of our joy. The frustration that we have in other people's failures begins to diminish. Look at verse 15. Paul says this, talking about considering people, especially people in the church. Paul says in verse 15, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter, they do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former, those who preach out of envy and rivalry, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So Paul, Paul's describing two different types of people that are out there calling themselves Christians. The one group, they have a heart for Paul, and the fact that he's in chains has only inspired them to preach the gospel more and more out of love and out of commitment. But this other group, they're out there preaching for selfish reasons. They want to build their own audience, and hey, while the famous apostle is locked up, I'm going to go ahead and start doing my own thing. They're doing it for selfish ambition. They're trying to make a name, trying to make money for themselves. Can I tell you that we will lose our joy with other people when we try to play the judge of other people? This is a word and a text that the church in America needs to hear now if ever before. We lose our joy when we try to play the judge of other people's motives. So it's really important that you know how Paul dealt with this. What's the algorithm? How how do I deal with the fact that I know there's people out there, they're calling themselves Christians and and they're proclaiming Jesus, but they're not living right? Or they got this wrong? How, How do I deal with that? Look at how Paul dealt with it. Verse 18, Paul says, but what does it matter? What's the matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I 
rejoice. That's incredible. Paul's saying his algorithm was so focused on building the kingdom of God and not on himself that he said when people preach the gospel with a heart of purity or when people preach the gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus with selfish ambition, trying to make money and a name for themselves, I don't even care because at the end of the day, it's about the gospel. The reason I'm in these chains, it's about the gospel. The reason that, that it matters that they're preaching is about expanding the gospel and building the kingdom of God. And I see so many Christians today in our society, we have bought into the cesspool of criticism in our culture, and we just lob darts at the backs of the soldiers in the army of God. We're picking each other off right and left. We're calling out each other's faults. We're pulling off each other's fig leaves like Adam and Eve said, oh, you're a sinner. Oh, no, you're a sinner. And we, we, we've, we've allowed ourselves to be pulled into this culture of criticism. And you know what? We're losing our joy. And the world looks at it and they go, man, what's wrong with you people? Man, you just eat each other for breakfast. And I want to say like Paul, look, I, I, I'm not going to lose my joy worrying about your motives. I'm not going to lose my joy worrying about the secret things in your heart. That's between you and God. I'm not your judge. But if you're going to stand up and declare that Jesus is king, I'm going to celebrate the fact that the gospel's going forth. Paul says, I'm, I'm not even worried about their motives. See, what happens when we decide that, that we should be the one to judge people's heart? What happens is we end up standing outside of the party that Jesus is at. You ought to read Luke 15 this afternoon. Jesus has harsh criticism for those that don't want to celebrate what God is doing. We need the Holy Spirit to fill our lives so much so that we would stop fixating on other people's faults and start seeing what grace is doing. That's how you maintain joy when you're dealing with other people, people that are different from you, people that are presenting the gospel different than you, people that are walking out their faith differently than you are. But, but what about lost people? How do, how do we deal with that? How do we get over the problem with lost people? Let me just give one piece of advice here as we get ready to close this service about lost people. We need to remember that the lost are not our enemy. I think sometimes Christians forget that. The lost are not the enemy. They are the captives that Jesus came to set free. They are the ones that God has called us to go and to rescue. And Jude 23 says to snatch from the fire. They need saved. You can't fault a lost person for acting like a lost person. They're lost. And we would, we would take great strides in maintaining our joy if we would just remember that the lost people are not our enemy. If we would do a lot less shouting and a lot more weeping. We need to weep for the lost, not shout at them. In fact, Psalm 126 says this, speaking about the heart of mission-minded believers. Psalm 126, verse 6, those who go out weeping, that means people that have passion, people that have a real heart for the broken, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, that's the word of God, they will return with songs of joy, carrying the sheaves 
with them. What's he saying? When you go out with a burden for the lost, not an accusation for the lost, a burden for the lost, and you carry the, you sow the seed, the word of God, the promise is that God's word will not return void. It shall accomplish those things it was sent forth to do. So if you'll go forth and scatter the seed of the word, not only will you come back with the sheaves, not only will you come back with the harvest, but you're also going to come back with a song. You're also going to come back with joy. There's something amazing that can happen in the heart of a person that begins to decide to live on mission because happiness is fleeting and seems like the people that are the most fixated on pursuing happiness are also the most frustrated. The people that have real joy are the people that are living for others. They're not consumed with their own pursuit of happiness, but they're pursuing a greater cause. What often happens is we lose our joy when we make mountains out of molehills. All the little peripheral issues become the big talking points. We could spend hours debating and blowing people up on, online for different opinions about different things, and we make mountains out of molehills, but usually that happens because we first made a molehill out of the mountain. See, Paul had a clear perspective on the main thing. You got to keep the main thing the main thing. He said, what do I care about that? The gospel's going forward. It's about the gospel. And if we'll keep that in our perspective, then we're not going to lose our joy on all of the other things that are the non-essentials. God wants to give you an algorithm for joy. I've only talked about a few of the areas of our life that we struggle to find joy. In our prayers, dealing with other people, dealing with problems. But God wants to give you joy. And he's given you the capacity to have it. It's not based on circumstances. It's not based on relationships. It's not based on whether you burn the turkey or not. It's joy that can be ours. Your mind can be renewed in Christ Jesus. Jesus.